morning, Grace Point. We're so glad you're here with us today. And unfortunately, we are gathering once again in the aftermath of a tragedy. Over the last several weeks, we've been intentional about saying the names Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. We've been intentional as a community um, to affirm that Black Lives Matter. And now, unfortunately, the name George Floyd has been added to that list. I've looked all week long. I've been looking for language. I've been looking for words that I could put onto the emotion, the anger, the sadness, the fear. The, and I, I just keep coming up with nothing. I can't find the words. And then I remembered um, a dear friend of mine, Ben Grace, had written a song in a similar context a couple years ago. And so I asked Ben to share that with us this week, to share a little bit about where the song came from and to share, and then to share the song with us. So Ben, take it away. Hey, Grace Point, I'm Ben Grace, and it's an honor to be with you this morning. I wrote this song in July of 2016. It was the week that Philander Castile and Alton Sterling were shot at the hands of police. And then a few days later, as people gathered in Dallas to peacefully protest and to proclaim that Black Lives Matter, five police officers were shot uh, and killed in the line of duty as they walked with the protesters to protect them. And every time we come to a crisis like this in this country, I feel it all over again, as if it's the first time. I feel it in my bones, I feel the grief, I feel the rage, I feel the despair, I feel the lack of answers, and I sure know I don't have them. Um, but what I do know that is, is lament can move us through, and if we don't process grief, and don't process our anger, and don't let ourselves feel the feelings and the horror this is all over again, that we can get stuck, we can get stuck in places. Uh, so this song is half lament, and the other half is uh, a proclamation of the future. And these are borrowed from the words of Isaiah that talk about uh, that there will come a day when we melt our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And there will come a day when sorrow is no more. And there will come a day when love will overcome. So the song is called An Eye for an Eye. With the blood of all our young men And the video show Black bodies falling again All the flags fly at half-mast As the horrors are broadcast From Baghdad to Baton Rouge And we struggle to weep Cause we ain't even shocked by the news We'll beat our swords in the plowshares Melt down all the guns We'll disarm the whole world But until that day comes I'll keep on dreaming of a world without war Cause a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye Leaves the whole world blind It's not worth fighting for We walk through the streets Like all of our grandmothers died We typed so we bleed in a digital war for our lives. But the 
rhetoric resounds the hatred abounds from both sides of the enemy lines they say guns don't kill people but we see the videos live we'll be down swords in a plowshares melt down all the guns disarm the whole world but until that day comes I'll keep on dreaming Of a world without war Cause a tooth for a tooth And an eye for an eye Leaves the whole world blind It's not worth fighting for No It's not worth fighting Come a day when sorrow and tears wiped away. No more mothers in mourning, a new days dawning when peace will have the last say. Cause true love is roaring and Abel's blood calls from the grave. We'll beat our swords in a plowshares. Melt down all the guns We'll disarm the whole world But until that day comes I'll keep on dreaming Of a world without war Cause a tooth for a tooth And an eye for an eye Leaves the whole world blind It's not worth fighting this is a reading from John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. It was still the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. Well, I've been really, really excited to jump back into our re-series because what we're doing in this series is we're reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. For lots of us, as we've been on this journey, this unraveling, this faith shift, and we've left behind certain ways of seeing the world, certain ways of seeing the Bible, certain ways of understanding faith, and what happens is that kind of can create a sense of disorientation. And what do we do with the language? What do we do with these words that have been part of our our faith um, vocabulary. And so right around the time that the pandemic was kicking into high gear, around the time we suspended our in-person gatherings, 
we were jumping into the series. We were talking about salvation and sin and atonement. And this week, I'm going to jump back in and we're going to talk about church. Because today on the Christian calendar is what is known as the day of Pentecost. So I thought today would be a good day to get a little Pentecost stole, uh, <laughs> if you would. So um, there are two stories in the New Testament that talk about the Pentecost experience. The most well-known one, it comes from the book of Acts chapter 2, and it has all sorts of theatrics. Um, to give you a little bit of background on this, the word Pentecost literally just means 50th. And it is intended to, it's a, fe a festival um, that happens 50 days after Passover. Um, so in the Hebrew tradition, this is actually, in the Hebrew language, this is called Shavuot. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks. And it commemorates two um, sort of moments that are pretty pivotal, were pivotal in the, the life of the Jewish community. First was that it commemorated the wheat harvest. Um, which was a very, in an agrarian society, it was a big deal that the harvest go well. So it commemorates the wheat harvest, celebrates it. And then it also celebrates and remembers God giving the Torah to Israel. The Torah, of course, is the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. And you can find that story in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Acts, essentially what's happened is the author of Acts takes the events that happened in Exodus around the giving of the law, and this writer reshapes them around an experience um, where these first Christians are in a room together and the spirit bursts through like a rushing wind and there's uh, flaming tongues of fire everywhere. Like it's a, the theatrics, like the, the special effects budget on this thing would definitely break the bank. Uh, and the writer's doing this as a way to sort of say there's something new, something the spirit is alive and moving. So that's sort of the one everybody knows where the first Christians start speaking in languages they don't know and people from all over the world hear them and understand them. That's sort of, when we talk about Pentecost, that's the story most of the time we think about because it happened on Pentecost and it was um, pivotal in, in the shaping of the early Christian community. There's another story in the Bible, though, um, that talks about the same experience of the giving of spirit. The, and essentially, Pentecost is known as the birth of the church. So in this moment, the spirit is given and the church, the church becomes, Right. But there's another story that talks about it very differently, and it's a story that I actually prefer, and it comes from John chapter 20, which we've heard read for us already this morning. And this story doesn't take place 50 days from Easter. This story takes place on Easter evening. So to sort of give you some context, that uh, Mary went to the tomb and found it empty in the Gospel of John. The disciples raced to the tomb, literally in a competitive race. They find the tomb empty. Later, Mary bumps into Jesus in the garden. She thinks he's the gardener, and then she discovers he's alive. She goes and tells the disciples he's alive, and then we find them gathered in a room with locked doors, and they're afraid. Why would they be afraid? Well, the, the, Jesus was viewed as enough of a threat, as enough of a revolutionary threat, even though he was nonviolent. He was a threat enough to the empire and to the to sort of the aristocracy, the temple aristocracy. He was a big enough threat for them to kill him. And what was pretty common was if you're going to kill the leader, why not just round up the followers so nobody gets the idea that they can launch this thing and start this thing back up. So they're meeting together. They're, they're processing an unbelievable week in their lives, processing an unbelievable morning where the body of Jesus is missing and now Mary is saying he's alive. And they're in this locked room, terrified, afraid of what's going to happen next. And then Jesus just shows up in the room like you do, right? Like walks through, I don't know how, did he just appear? Was he, did he walk through the wall? I mean, I, I think that what we're being told here is whatever this story means, it's 
perhaps uh, working on another level, right? It's not just a flesh and blood story. This is a story about something even bigger. And so Jesus appears in the room. And imagine if you're one of these disciples, imagine the sense, the feeling, the, the sensation you feel when you look up and suddenly Jesus has appeared in the room. The last time you had anything to do with Jesus was when he was betrayed by one of your own uh, and then was abandoned by everybody else. I mean, that's the story, right? Jesus is betrayed and Jesus is abandoned. The very people who said that they would be willing to die with him weren't even willing to stick around to watch him die. Um, And if you were them, I mean, just imagine, imagine, what would it be like? He, now he's here. You abandoned him. You made grand promises and big, bold statements, and you didn't fulfill them. And now, here he is, and he's alive. What's going to happen to you? I mean, don't you think there's probably, for these disciples, there's a little bit of, I mean, they already have grief, right? They've lost their friend, their teacher, their leader. And they had bailed on him at the most critical moment. I wonder if they were afraid of what Jesus was going to do. Like he's back. I mean, it almost sounds like a, a, a B-rate um, action movie, right? He, it's the sequel. Like he's back and everybody's going to pay, right? So would Jesus be angry? Would he do to them what they'd done to him, essentially abandon them? Would he want them to feel as alone and forgotten as he had felt? And that's not what happens at all. Jesus appears in the room and he's not a source of guilt, a source of shame or a source of anger. He enters the room and he immediately says, peace be with you. Actually, in this story, this this short story, Jesus speaks peace to these disciples twice. Peace be with you. This word uh, in the New Testament would have been written in Greek, but the concept would have been from from the Hebrew scriptures. And the word uh, peace in the Hebrew Bible is shalom, in the Hebrew, Hebrew language, shalom. And we hear this word used quite a bit, but it, it often gets translated as meaning peace, right? Like, and when we think of peace, we think of a cessation of a conflict. We think of something that was maybe going on and now that, that we sort of walked away from it. But that's not what peace means in the Hebrew scriptures. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew language, the word peace, shalom, actually means wholeness. It, it means harmony. It means completeness everything being in right relationship with everything else. When Jesus comes in and speaks peace, he is essentially speaking those realities into the lives of these disciples. He's essentially saying, yes, you abandoned me, but peace be with you. Yeah, 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 you didn't live up to the hype, and that's okay. Peace be with you. Don't keep carrying around the shame, the guilt, the fear, the worry. Those aren't yours to carry. Peace be with you. It's like saying wholeness be with you. Harmony, balance, may completeness be with you. May you know that even though there were these things that happened, you're not lacking anything. You're not, uh, God has not changed God's mind about you. Jesus has not changed Jesus' mind about you. Peace be with you. And this is actually a callback to something Jesus said to them before his betrayal, abandonment, and execution. In John 14, he said this, prior to Um, everything unraveling. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I I give to you not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. And so this this is a callback. When Jesus enters the room and says, peace be with you, it's this, uh, remember, I I gave you my peace and I don't give it as the world gives it. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be troubled. Peace be with you.
Now, when Jesus says world there, he's not talking about creation. He's not talking about the world we live in. He's talking about world as in systems and structures of domination and oppression, i.e. he's talking about empire. Empire gives a certain kind of peace. The Roman historian Tacitus described the Roman empire like this. They make a desert and call it peace, right? When they think of peace, it's about um, can you, whoever can hit the hardest, whoever has the biggest gun, whoever has the biggest weapon wins. And the way you get peace is you decimate your opponent. And for Jesus, he's introducing another approach to peace, a different kind of peace, a peace that doesn't depend on defeating someone, but actually a peace that comes from wholeness, completeness, and harmony. And then Jesus does something in this text. He does three things, actually. Um, He talks about three things, does three things that I think have, um, for me, have come to shape what I think the church is and what I think the church's opportunity and what the church's job is in the world. So Jesus, he sends them, We'll talk about each of these. He breathes on them. And then he says something interesting about forgiveness. So first he sends them. He actually says, as the father sent me, so I am sending you. As the mother sent me, so I am sending you. Right? The divine, whatever language you want to use, the divine parent, whatever language, Jesus is saying that, that God sent him into the world to do a thing, to be a part of something, to launch something. And now Jesus said, just like I've been sent to do this, now I am sending you. To do this, which is fascinating because what it means is that Jesus thinks whatever his work was is also our work. That whatever Jesus entered the world to do is the same work that we have entered the world to do. And that is the work of embodying a life that is brimming with goodness. It is the work of working for justice. It is the work that brings healing wherever it goes. It is a life that cannot be contained or restrained by anything else. Jesus' belief is that his followers are going to be engaged in the exact same work he was, which when we talk about so many of the theological categories, right? If we look back to atonement, if Jesus is saying that our work and his work is our work, then are we supposed to die substitutionally for the sins of the world? No, 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 of course not. What Jesus is getting at is that the thing that he was sent into the world to do is the very thing that we've been sent. And that is to spread love, goodness, and compassion everywhere we go. I actually think the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed had nothing to do with opening blind eyes or or helping somebody walk or or, or raising the dead. I think the greatest thing Jesus ever did was, was that he would see, include, and embrace everyone that the dominant cultural, religious, political, economic system excluded. Jesus would embrace everyone that all the dominant systems of his day excluded. It's interesting that for for 2,000 years now, the institution that has come to be called church, to be known as church, has been more interested in worshiping Jesus than following him. We've been more interested in creating boundaries and systems that keep people out, right? Whether those boundaries are theological or whether those boundaries are ritual, like whatever. We have spent... We've worked overtime to create systems that keep people, that restrict access and keep people at a distance. And Jesus said, actually, I'm sending you into the world to do the same work I've been doing. And the work Jesus was doing was not creating systems of oppression, but dismantling them. The work that Jesus was doing was not creating distance between people and God or people and the religious institution or ritual. Jesus was about tearing down and breaking down those boundaries so that everybody could have access, so that everybody had a seat at the table. This, When Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world, this sending isn't a call to worship. It is a call to embodiment. 
It's about what happens in this world. It is not an evacuation plan to get the faithful out of this world, but it's the emergence of a movement impelled by love to care for the world. What does it mean to be part of church? It means that we have been sent into the world to do the work that Jesus was sent into the world to do. Which means that when we think about church, we should think about people who are on the front lines of dismantling white supremacy culture. It means that we should, when we think of church, we should think of people on the front lines um, battling uh, sexism. It means we should think of people on the front lines uh, when we think of church, uh, people who care deeply about uh, fixing systems that keep people in, in poverty and in debt. It means when you think of church, you should think of people who are leading the charge on climate change because this good world we've been given, we are, we've been placed as stewards of. It's not ours, it's on loan. And we have this calling to tend it and care for it well. I mean, all of those and so many more things. When you think of church, you should think of a group of people who are tearing down walls and creating easier inroads for access for everybody, especially those who have been marginalized and left without a seat at the table. Right? When you think of church, you should think of a group of people who are championing, championing the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. And all of those things, when you think of church, a bet for most of us when we think of church, we think of people who are doing the opposite of that. People who are trying to restrict access. People who are afraid to speak up about key issues that really, really matter, like dismantling supremacy culture and the inclusion of LGBTQ folks. Like this work, this is the work. And it's possible that you can sit in a church all day long and just sing and and worship and whatever, and you can actually still be so far from the work. Because Jesus did not call us to worship him. He called us to continue his work. He called us to follow. He called us to embodiment. And yeah, it's, I, it's great. Getting together and singing songs is great, but we can't allow whatever that happens in a, a gathering like this. This is not sort of the work. This is preparing for the work. And we're being sent into the world, wherever we find ourselves, however we find ourselves, we're being sent into the world. And that's the work, the way we engage and move in the world. And so we gather together on a weekly basis to, to sort of be energized, equipped, and launched into the world to do this good and meaningful work. Second, Jesus talks about breath, or he, he actually breathes on them. He breathes on the disciples and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Acts has a lot of theatrics, but, but around Pentecost, there's a rushing wind and fire and languages. And, but there's something about this intimate moment that I love in John's telling of the story. It's not big in public. It's in, the, it's in the private quiet of a locked room with some disciples who feel like they've just completely dropped the ball, people who feel like they have been, perhaps they're irredeemably They've failed irredeemably. And Jesus enters into that room, speaks peace to them, sends them, and then breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. There's something about that intimate sort of moment. This, this sort of Jesus is offering CPR to these first Christians to send them, to equip them, to empower them to go do this work in the world. And of course, Jesus breathing on the disciples is also a callback to Genesis chapter two, where God creates 
a human being. And before uh, anything else happens on the fertile land, God creates a, forms a human being from the topsoil of the fertile land. This is from Genesis 2. And blew life's breath into his nostrils, and the human came to life. God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put the human there he had formed. What, what a story. God forms this human being out of the dust. And God breathes into the human being. And in Hebrew, the word breath and spirit are the same word. God does a sort of divine CPR and the human being comes to life. And this living, breathing human being is then placed in a garden to care for it and to work. I think that what John is getting at and telling us the story this way is that what's happening in and through Jesus is a new creation is being launched right in the middle of the old one. I mean, after all, John begins this gospel in John 1.1, in the beginning. What other book of the Bible begins in the beginning, right? The book of Genesis. And so here at the end, John is telling a new creation story. And here at the end, we have a new human being who's breathing into these other disciples the breath of life and sending them to be gardeners in the world. What a powerful, powerful image. A new creation is being launched, and it's not going to happen outside of us. It's not going to happen, you know, God's not going to just come down and do it or come down, if that's a thing, right? It's actually going to be something that happens in and through human partnership. The work of new creation is the work of liberation. It's the work of inclusion. It's the work of transforming the world and all of her inhabitants. And of course, this is not just Christian work. Right? There are people in other faiths and uh, other religions and other faiths who are doing the same good work. For those of us who um, the Jesus story speaks to, we do this work through the Christian lens. And our part of new creation is to join, join with the divine and join with others, each other, and even people in other traditions to do good work in the world, to do this work of tending the new creation. And it's emerging right in the middle of the old. It's not like, well, the old will go away and then the new will come. No, no, no. It actually begins slowly. It begins to foment. It begins to grow. It begins to happen right in the middle of the old creation. And then the last thing Jesus said. Well, so so well, let's go back. What would it might mean to be church when we think about breath? It means that we've been breathed into and that we've been given some work to do as gardeners in the world. We've been sent with the same mission that Jesus had, this mission of loving and caring and including and tearing down walls and increasing access. And then Jesus says something really, really interesting. In the first 35 years I studied this text, I, I struggled with this last part because Jesus ends this beautiful, I'm sending you in the world. You have the same mission as me. I'm breathing into you the spirit to go do the work. And then Jesus says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. What a weird way to end the story, right? This beautiful sending and filled with the breath of the Spirit. And then Jesus is like, hey, by the way, you want to, if you forgive somebody, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive somebody, they're not forgiven. Which raises the question, like, who should we not forgive? Who should we withhold forgiveness from? And the more I've studied it and the more I've wrestled with this text, the more I think that's the point. Maybe this is simply a reminder for us that as we go and do our work, that in so many ways, we will become synonymous with God. In so many ways, people will listen to us and they will look at us and they will assume that we are speaking for God. It happens all the time. 
right? There are so many people who've been wounded by church because they think bullhorn guy with his big tacky sign, they think that he speaks for God. Right? There have been so many people wounded and so many people turned off by the Christian tradition because they see the hypocrisy of certain national leaders who now have flip-flopped on their morals and their values because it's given them access to power. And they'll think, that's what it means to be Christian. I don't want anything to do with that. That's what it means to have some sort of belief in God. I don't want anything to do with that. And maybe what Jesus is saying here is, don't forget that when you enter the world, people are going to assume that you somehow speak for God in some way, that you embody presence. And what people will do is they'll believe you. Ultimately, they'll believe you. I think Jesus is saying here, make sure that nobody gets excluded. Make sure that nobody gets not forgiven. Make sure that nobody, you give nobody the reason, uh, you give no one a reason to experience pain because of religious exclusion. Now, what would it look like if we entered the world knowing that there are going to be people who encounter us and they're going to think we speak for God? And if that's the case, let's make sure we're speaking a good word. Let's make sure we're speaking compassionately. Let's make sure we're engaging with love. Let's make sure that we are tearing down barriers and obstacles. Let's make sure we are dismantling systems of oppression. Let's make sure we're doing the work that Jesus was given to do so that if by chance they do think we're speaking for God, that they're hearing something good and beautiful and true, something that can be liberating and not something refined, restraining. I love this quote from John Shelby Spong about this text. He says, that is what resurrection means for John. And it is not something that occurred just in the life of Jesus. It occurs or it can occur in each of us. The Christian life is not about believing creeds and being obedient to divine rules. It is about living, loving, and being. Think about that. The Christian faith, Christian life is not about believing creeds and being obedient to divine rules. It's about living, loving, and being. I think we could almost say it like this. We have been taught so long that, that to be a person of faith means you believe certain things. And maybe what the actual point, or maybe actually what it means is not that you believe certain things, it's how you believe things. You believe them compassionately. You believe them with humility. You hold them with a sort of lightness because you know that you're probably wrong about some things, right? He goes on to say, resurrection comes when we are free to give our lives away, free to love beyond the boundaries of our fears, free not only to be ourselves, but to empower all others to be themselves in the full, rich variety of our multifaceted humanity. Here, prejudice dies. Here, wholeness is tasted. Here, resurrection becomes real. And this resurrection story, which is also a Pentecost story, right? Where these disciples meet Jesus and he gives them mission and he breathes into them. This is resurrection. And resurrection always calls us beyond what we think is possible. And that should be the voice of the church in the world. Continually calling us as human beings, continually inviting us into the space beyond what we thought was possible. Looking at the world right now, there's a lot that seems really impossible. Like even just, let's just focus on our country. Like there's a lot that feels impossible. Like that we could ever find some sort of common ground to be on the same page and work together instead of working against you. That seems pretty impossible. It seems pretty impossible at this moment with all that's happened in the last several weeks that um, we are making progress in dismantling supremacy structures. 
And yet resurrection calls us beyond what we think is possible. Resurrection invites us into new ground. It invites us into new creation. It invites us to be gardeners and co-creators in a brand new world. And the problem, I think, is we're resurrection people playing by pre-resurrection rules. And instead, we play by resurrection rules. Resurrection rules, anything is possible. Anything can, anything can happen. If we put ourselves into the good work, transformation of ourselves, transformation of the world, transformation of our enemies, transformation actually becomes possible. And that's what Pentecost is about. That's what it means to be church. Church isn't just a thing you attend. It is is a community that you engage with and then connect with and then move into the world in such a way that it will never be the same. Church is what happens when we realize that we have been, we have breathed the breath of new creation. We've been sent into the world to join the exact work Jesus was doing. There's this other line in John, which is fantastic, um, where Jesus says, you're going to do greater things than you've seen me do. Think about that. Jesus sends his disciples in the world, into the world and he says, now show me up. Go beyond. Don't stop with me. Keep moving forward. That's what resurrection, that's what Pentecost is ultimately all about. Moving us beyond the barriers of what we thought was possible. Inviting us into a brand new creation as gardeners and co-creators in a world that is, has limitless potential. Mm-hmm.